Hello, and welcome to another Australian Grape and Wine Conversations podcast. I'm Tony Badaline, Chief Executive of Australian Grape and Wine. Today, I'm very pleased to be joined by Martin O'Dea from Australian Export Partner Network. So welcome and thanks for joining us today, Martin. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Tony. So today, our topic is to talk about market diversification. Market diversification is the flavour of the month. Uh, and what I want to do is to go through and talk to some of the experts in the industry. So Martin's had many years experience in market diversification. So we'll come to him and he can tell us a little bit about those experience in a few minutes. But first, a brief introduction about why market diversification is flavour of the month. For those of you who haven't lived under a rock, you've probably realised that the Chinese Ministry of Commerce have made its final determinations on countervailing and anti-dumping investigation on the 26th of March. And what this means is that these decisions have imposed a tariff of up to 218.4% on bottled packaged wine into China for the next five years. Clearly, this is an effective closure of the Australian wine market in China. It leaves us with an immediate problem of finding a home for around 120, 130 million litres of red wine into both new and existing markets without cannibalising that price or market share of our wine on domestically. We've already seen some immediate pressure on red grape wine prices this vintage, and there's potential for much more serious impacts in vintage 2022, unless we can really find these new markets. And I should point out, it's not about finding new markets necessarily. It's about developing market share and selling at a higher price point. Because the thing about China was they took a lot of product and they paid top dollar. So obviously we've got a number of options on this. We can sell more wine domestically, but quite clearly it's a pretty tight market most of the imports that we can substitute for a white wine, uh, sell more internationally, we can develop new products or reduce costs. Today, and what I want to talk to Martin about is about our prospects for market diversification and principally into those Asian regions. So firstly, Martin, let's get some background for you. How long have you been exporting from Asia to Asia from Australia? Well, actually, Tony, we only started Australian Export Products Network in um, late 2020. And that was after the Chinese um, did what they did. And also the regional trade agreement was signed. I have another company that covers most of the area. Uh, well, we cover all of Asia and pretty much all of the area of the regional trade agreement. So I thought it was a good idea to actually help people with export. Um, we have uh, our first major clients have already been signed up and we already have interest for their wines in places like India, Indonesia, Malaysia, Myanmar, Singapore, Philippines, Vietnam, because we cover all of those. So anyway, we're off to a good start. These things are not quick, but um, we're already getting some traction in these countries. Yeah, and these are great market or great potential markets that we've identified as uh, key targets, those ones that you mentioned. Obviously, there's many more. Um, I, I know you only you've been exporting or going since late 2020. So how did you get all this experience about working in Asia? Because Asia is a very a different market and Asia is not Asia. There are many different markets within Asia. Oh, you're absolutely right there, I tell you. Um, I first actually started doing business in Asia in the early 2000s and um, I was basically flying back and forth. But in 2010, I moved up to Singapore and that's when my real Asian adventure uh, began. You, you really don't fully appreciate Asia until you live there. <laughs> and I've lived in Singapore, uh, Malaysia, Vietnam, and the Philippines, uh, while I was building up uh, my business. So in short, the business um, 
is uh, rep has representation in most countries uh, throughout Asia, from um, India through to Japan and from Mongolia down to Indonesia. Uh, we basically the only major country we don't cover is China. So um, we lived up there, and then my family and I moved back down to Australia in late 2018 because my children I wanted them to go to school here. Uh, but the business is still pretty much an Asian-centric business. And, it, and I, of course, was doing a lot of travel up until COVID hit. Yeah, COVID's made a big impact on all of us, hasn't it, in travel? So uh, I guess what, you know, you've just got into the Export Products Network in late 2020. So what were you doing uh, for that last, you know, decade, really? Yeah, well, Speedy Global has started as a cruise line hiring partner, and we're actually one of the largest hiring partners in the world, and we supply the largest cruise line companies in the world. Um, just one com one company alone, we supplied over 2,000 crew, obviously from across Asia, not from just one country, um, in the year before COVID. Um, so basically, uh, you know, uh, we're just waiting for the uh, industry to boom back. It will uh, once the travel is allowed. Uh, the industry will come back online, I'm sure, and so just come on vaccine. Yeah, I guess that's given you a lot of experience in, in how the Asian markets work. And I think that's probably very helpful. And we'll get on in a minute or two just uh, what you see as the major prospects and, and some of the major uh, difficulties in Asia. But uh, I, I guess what I, I'm interested in is what's your background in the wine industry? I mean, clearly you've got a lot of experience with Asia, but, you know, do you have a passion for wine? Have you been involved in wine? Yes, actually, yes, I have. In the late 1990s, I joined an organisation called Order Mondial de Gourmet Degustationers. I'm still in it now. Basically, it's a, it's a fancy name for people who like to drink wine. Um, so uh, out of that, though, a couple of years later, I decided to start one of the first WSET uh, training businesses here in Brisbane. And WSET is the Wine Spirit Education Trust. They're an internationally recognised wine certification. And I, I still have that business teaching um, not only the WSET, but other wine courses. So effectively, um, I mean, we could help anyone, but the reason why we have a passion for wine is that I've actually been involved in the industry for over 20 years. All right, well, let's, let's cut to the chase. And uh, we've all been exporting to China for a long time, and it's been a great market for us. Uh, we've had high value consumers and um, they've uh, really paid top dollar. Now that market is closed for at least five years, unless uh, there's a dramatic change in the international sphere. And I, I don't see that happening anytime soon. So why is exporting wine to China different to exporting to Asia? Why, what's the difference? Well, Let's, when I was teaching, and I still do, but over the years, we've taught a lot of Chinese people and a lot of them were students and some of them were actually Australian residents. But all of them, well, almost all of them, they said their reason for actually uh, doing the training programs was so that they could export Australian wine to China. So on a couple of occasions, they've actually asked me whether I would help them, you know, with getting product. And the first time I was asked, after that I didn't bother, but the first time I was asked, I said I would. And I found that when I was dealing with the producers, that when I was talking to them, they basically were either already exporting to China and they really did not have any desire for more customers. It's a very unusual attitude. <laughs> so I found that um, most of the wine producers, though, they were, they were not actually in China. They were not going to China. They were not promoting themselves in China and they didn't even have any representation in China. 
They just had basically a long conga line of people who turned up on their door here in Australia and asked them to sell them their wine. And the strangest thing was, of course, they didn't have to really negotiate on price. They've just not much negotiation at all because otherwise there'd be someone else knocking on the door in five minutes' time. And believe me, this is nothing like the normal experience when you're exporting to Asia. So I, I'm not putting anyone down. I'm, I'm just stating the facts. So doing, doing business in Asia is normally a hard slog. It requires a lot of personal interaction and a willingness to negotiate hard. Most importantly, um, we have to understand that there are big differences between them and us. And we need to be able to understand that they have different expectations when we negotiate. So what the wine industry was experiencing with China was great while it lasted, but it's really not um, setting people up for exporting and understanding how to export into Asia. So apart from the major companies who of course already have representation in most countries of the world, most producers have really not had true exposure to exporting and have not had any, and often, exposure to the other markets that are in Asia. Yeah, and I think that's, that's a really good point. Life was pretty good and pretty easy in China and it was, pre, it was pretty easy to export and they paid top dollar. Uh, and there are a lot of other uh, reasons for going to China. So we have neglected those other markets. And I think probably there isn't much understanding of that cultural differences that you point out. Um, can you give us some of the other examples of the differences between? Yeah, so just, just one, one example. When I, was, when I was young, if you went to a stall and you saw an item on the stall that was $20, right? Most people in Australia would just pay $20. If you were feeling really cheeky, you might have said, oh, can I have 18 or 19, right? But you'd never, ever dream of saying, I'll give you 10. You'd feel that you'd be offending the seller. Okay, whereas in Asia, you know, they'd start at 10, maybe less, even though the actual seller would say absolutely that the product was the lowest possible or ever, they could not do better than that. But then they would start negotiating and they would probably end up at $14, at which point in time there was a good sale made and both sides were happy. So this, neither way is right or wrong, but it's just that they are different. And people, um, if they want to diversify, they've got to understand that our expectations and our experiences are different. And so that's just one example. And I'm sure that a lot of your listeners are probably familiar with that type of thing, especially if they've travelled to Asia. But... At the end of the day, there are a lot of differences and some of them are quite subtle. And if you don't get them right, you can ruin a good negotiation. Yeah, and I think um, the fact is Australians are very quick at picking these things up, but they need to know the right direction. One of the things we found that during the COVID crisis that a lot of our uh, West Australian tourists who used to go to Bali are going to the Margaret River and trying to haggle on price. Yeah. Uh, so they've, they've adopted it over there, but failed to adopt the culture back home. So uh, it, it becomes really important. That's right. And it is very different depending on which country that you're in. So basically, you know, if you didn't negotiate in India, that is different to Vietnam. Vietnam is different to South Korea. And so when uh, we, of course, are different to the lot of them. So it's very, very important that when you're negotiating into these markets, it's not just a, a cookie cutter. You have to actually understand each market as well. Yeah, and the issues of face and trust are so, I mean, they're important in every market and people tend to 
um, misunderstand that and just say how important it is in China. It's just important in other Asian markets, in my experience. Uh, so how do you reckon you can help people avoid some of these mistakes that they uh, probably will make in Asia? And, you know, because the one thing we want to do, don't want to do is go in, approach it wrong and have the whole sector struggle because of that. Yes, that's right. On, honestly, I mean, I... I've made every single mistake there is, uh, believe me, over, over the last decade in particular when I was living up there the first few years, I, I pretty much did everything uh, that a person could do that was wrong. Um, I engaged consultants that uh, that were just, you know, not worth, you know, they promise you the world and they deliver not even an atlas. You know, I have, um, I've dealt with people who uh, told me that I needed to pay for licenses for this or that, get the licenses only to find out that I didn't need them or that they were the wrong ones. I've spent a lot of time and money traveling to see people who I understood were real, who, who should have been able to do things, um, and yet they weren't. And I've actually employed a lot of people over the years who really weren't worth a cent. So, you know, I've made all the mistakes, I reckon, that anyone can make, and there probably are a few uh, still for me to find, but I've also learned from those. So we've been able to put, uh, you know, that uh, time, money and grey hair into good experience, and I think from that I can actually assist other people to not make the same mistakes and not have to have go through the same pain, not get the same grey hair. And hopefully, of course, the other one is speed it up because I already have the relationships in place. So as you said before, quite rightly, a lot of Asian business is done on connections. So hopefully we can speed up the process for them. So Martin, I would just like to have gray hair rather than no hair. So that's certainly one thing that uh, I don't think you can help me with. Sorry. I, I guess um, you, you as a company and other companies like yours, because this is not an advertorial, this is, this is a, a discussion about the market diversification, um, but why, why do you think there are real benefits engaging someone like you to uh, get in rather than going it alone into some of these markets? Yeah. So, well, first of all, I think that the, uh, the major point, and as you say, not just us, but any if you can find another uh, entity that's like us, you really need to have a reliable chain at the moment, a trusted chain. Um, in order to be able to network, to be able to get in. So over the last decade, we've built that team. That, that, that team works uh, with my company, with me, uh, on the ground uh, in these countries. At the moment, of course, that's even more important because of COVID. People can't travel. So you really do need someone who you can actually contact on the ground in Vietnam, let's say, who you know you can trust. And that's a very hard thing to find, believe me. Um, secondly, I, I, there's... Um, our services are fully documented. And, and I think this is a very important point. Um, we actually are eligible uh, for grants in the sense that um, our services are actually grant eligible. Now, obviously an individual company needs to still apply for the grant and still needs to be granted it. So it's not an automatic thing, but we will even assist people with getting grants. In fact, um, we have a really good grants person who can assist in all sorts of grants, but our thing is grants eligible, and it is very important, I think, that people take advantage of that. You know, no point in spending your money if, if someone else will help you. And finally, I'm actually the owner of the business, so um, and I'm here in Australia, and I think that's actually really important. I don't know if you've ever tried to um, get a recourse against somebody who's in Asia when you've paid them money and they didn't deliver, but uh, let me tell you, you can't. Um, so at least they're dealing with somebody 
who at the end of the day is here and my family are here and they have recourse. So, you know, it's, it's funny though, um, producers here always think that, you know, the other side should trust them, you know, and that, that, that they are because they're righteous and they're real. And yet our company recently had to sign a guarantee for one of our exporters to the importer or to the potential importer to cover them in case they'd sent the money to our client here in Australia and didn't get the goods. So trust is a two-way thing. Because we are on the ground in the country, they trusted us knowing that we would go around, you know, they could come around and knock on the door and say, we haven't got the goods. So it's a two-way thing. So that's a reason, I think, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's a really good point in people trying to diversify quickly to find get build that trust. You can't do it overnight. Um, so people look for other channels. Um, I guess, finally, what's your best advice now as everyone rapidly is trying to diversify into Asia? What's your best advice about diversifying to, to more of these Asian markets? Yeah, look, I think the first and most important thing is that you don't know if a new market for your goods exists until you try to find it. That's the first one. And the second one is you'll rarely find a new market until you try so I'm not, I'm not saying that it's easy. I'm not saying it's cheap. I'm not saying it's guaranteed or quick. But at the end of the day, it's better than sitting here doing nothing and literally dying on the vine, excuse the pun. So, you know, the mean age in Asia is 28 years old, if, if, if I believe that's correct. And this is a great age, of course, to start drinking wine. Uh, they're heavily influenced by social media. There's a growing middle class and there's an increased awareness of wine. And so my point is that I think that in my mind that there's a market there and that if we go and approach that market and we tell them about our products, then it just stands to reason that we should get sales and increase it. And of course, yeah. it reduces the risk of um, dealing with just one company, uh, sorry, or one country, I should say. Well, thank you, Martin. And if people want to talk to Martin and find out more about him, please go give it, send him an email at martin at exportproducts, or one word, .com.au. Um, I guess a couple of things from my perspective I'd just like to, to mention is that the government is currently investing around $70 million in uh, working on market diversification against a whole range of products. Australian Grape and Wine is heavily involved in trying to make sure that that money is available so that can help the white grape and white sector. Uh, we're also very keen to make sure that both Austrade and Wine Australia work collaboratively with us in how we spend that money. A lot of that money is market diversification into Asia uh, and we things we're looking at will be retailer activations and the like uh, in some of those key Asian markets that we're not uh, high profile at the moment. So I guess we're also trying to work with states and regions to ensure what we do is synergistic. So I think communication and collaboration is going to be the key to this market diversification. Everyone's got to do their own thing, but I think everyone needs to be aware. And I think you mentioned it, Martin, that, that grants are around and we need to work together on this one uh, because it's the Australian category we've got to grow. Uh, so individuals can profit within that. So watch this space, uh, listen to our podcast. We'll bring a lot more on this whole issue of market diversification into the future. So thank you, Martin. Thank you, listeners. And, and we'll talk again very soon. Thank you.